Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, tonight we continue in the second section of our study on the person and work of Christ on the work of Christ, and tonight we're looking specifically at the work of Christ in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the resurrection of Christ built on the last two weeks the life of Christ, the atonement of Christ. Tonight we're looking at the resurrection of Christ. Um, the resurrection, obviously, with the atonement, the crucifixion, is the center of the gospel. Without the atonement of Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection on the third day, there is no gospel. There's no Christian message. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about things that are of first importance. And he says, I, I delivered to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So if we ask Paul, Paul, what is the center of the gospel? He would say the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. So without those events, uh, and this event in particular, we don't have the cornerstone or the pillar or the foundation of our faith. And of course, without those things, the whole building falls. Um, the resurrection as it is then is not an optional additive to Christianity. Uh, it is not just something that you can believe or not and still call yourself a Christian. Uh, I reference this article all the time. I reference it with our, our college kids as we've been talking about the resurrection. Uh, but the uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal, one of the two, um, a couple years ago, maybe five or so years ago, did an interview with the president of a seminary. And they asked this seminary president, um, can I be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? And she said, of course you can. You can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection, because she said some people think it's uh, a spiritual event, uh, that not, not literally Jesus rose from the dead, but in, in a spiritual sense. And so uh, it just sort of points to this, uh, you know, new beginning and, and perseverance. That's really the lesson behind it all, whether you believe it's literal or not. Uh, Paul begs to differ, and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain, our preaching is blasphemous, and we make God out to be a liar. If the resurrection didn't happen, if there is no physical resurrection of Jesus, then this whole thing is a lie, and we can go pack our bags and do something different. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says, and he is the firstfruits of those who will rise from the dead. So tonight we're going to see how the work of Christ and the resurrection is the center of our faith. It holds the whole thing together and also what it means for us and the hope that we have in Christ. So as we did last week, let's look a little bit at the Old Testament. As we looked at the atonement last week, we surveyed 
some sections in the Old Testament, but I want to remind you what Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what was also delivered to me, that Christ died for our sins, and did you miss that next part? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. Now, by the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, there may have been some circulation of uh, manuscripts that would later become the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially. But when Paul says the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. And so he says, look, you can go back in the Old Testament and find the atonement. We looked at that last week, the suffering servant and Abraham's lamb and the sacrificial system. He says that also you can go back to the Old Testament and you can find the resurrection according to the scriptures. In Luke chapter 24, you know the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and he appears to them, and it says that he explained all things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So Jesus himself preached himself from the Old Testament, using those scriptures to talk about his own crucifixion, the atonement, and the resurrection. But I just want to look at three specific places tonight, three of the most quoted in the whole New Testament. And the first is in Psalm 16. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. Psalm 16, and we'll look specifically at verse 10. Psalm 16, verse 10. The psalmist uh, David says here, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, David here is talking about himself, sort of, and he is talking about himself as the Lord's anointed king, God's king, God's chosen king, the Lord's anointed but we're also looking beyond this. Okay, David's saying, you will not leave me and abandon me. You will not forsake me. But he adds some extra strong language on there. Not just you won't abandon me or leave me or forsake me, but you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. You won't just leave me there. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption, talking about the physical corruption of his body. But there's a problem with this. David does die. David is buried. And David uh, decays just like every last one of us will. So what's this all about? When we look at the New Testament, we see this very verse quoted by Peter and Paul. You don't have to turn here in Acts, but it's there on your handout. Uh, look at it later for reference. As they're preaching the gospel, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost, and then uh, Paul in one of his many sermons about the gospel, they quote this very verse. Peter, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, quotes Psalm 16.10. For the Bible says, the scripture says, you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And then Peter says what I just said. He says, look, David died and his body is there in the tomb to this day. And then Peter says, this is about Jesus. Both Paul and Peter use this verse to point beyond David and point to the resurrection of Jesus. Look, Peter's dead. Peter's in the tomb. But Jesus, Peter says, God has raised up. And of this we are all witnesses. 
And Paul says the same thing. This is about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the fulfillment of David's promise. Remember 2 Samuel 7. Just keep that in your mind. Verses 12 and 13 specifically. But remember God says to David, I'll put one of your sons on your throne forever. He will reign and his kingdom will be everlasting. Remember when we come into the New Testament, that verse is specifically applied to Jesus. The angel says to Mary, this will be that king. This will be the son of David that was foretold. And so while David dies and his body does see corruption until the day of resurrection, there is coming one, David says, Peter says, Paul says, there was one who was not abandoned to death, whose body did not see corruption, namely David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, those verses directly apply to Jesus. And there are many, many more we could go to, uh, but it is interesting that Peter and Paul both quote that one specifically. Let's turn over to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. That's a fun one for you. A little helpful tidbit about the Psalms. When you turn to um, one of the Psalms, you can just say Psalm 23. The book is a collection of Psalms, but then there's just one Psalm at a time. Isn't that just neat? Or Sam? Yeah. You're Scottish people, if you listen to any good Scottish preachers, and if you don't, you should. Uh, they, say, they say Sam. They do say that with like a, a silent L, like Sinclair Ferguson. Anybody know him? You do. <laughs> they say Sam. Uh, I'll say Psalm. Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. Look at verse 1 there. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see anything interesting about the language there? The Lord says to my Lord. Uh, if you know what you're looking at there, capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh, covenant name for God. And capital L, little o-r-d, is Adonai, uh, or just ruler, master. And so it's interesting that Yahweh says to my Lord, the anointed one, the Lord, the Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the New Testament, when we come and see this, and we'll see it in a minute, this becomes a clear picture of the resurrection. That Yahweh... God Almighty will say to the Lord, and we see later this is pointing to Jesus, um, he will say to him, here, sit at my right hand until the day I make your enemies your footstool. I'm prophesying what? That one day all of his enemies will be under his feet. And there is coming a day when all the enemies will be a footstool for the Lord's anointed. Of course, this is referring in the New Testament, to Jesus' victory over sin and death. All those enemies, death, hell, sin, the grave, all put under the feet of Jesus. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 22, and you can turn there if you like, Matthew 22, I do want to read this together. Jesus applies this to himself. You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, whatever the psalmist would have been referencing in Psalm 110, the right hand is that place of prominence, the place of power, 
Uh, the disciples were always arguing who, who, who was going to be at Jesus' right hand in the coming kingdom, remember? Now, that place of prominence and power and position and authority. And Yahweh says to this Lord, here, sit at my right hand, share my glory with me, which Isaiah says God does not share his glory. So this is God sharing his glory with God. The, uh, John 1 is a spectacular passage because it talks about uh, in John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. All that same language, the Lord says to my Lord, no one has seen God, but God who is at his right hand at his side has made him known. And then Jesus takes this in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, look beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And he, uh, he said to them, How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any questions. See what Jesus is doing there? He's putting the Pharisees in, uh, in a box. He's trapping them with the sort of questions that they like to trap him with. And notice that after he did this back to them, they don't ask him any more questions from that day forward. It says, now they go and kill him, but they're not going to come in with any more questions because uh, they've sort of been put in their place. He asked them a question they can't get away from. Whose son is the Christ? Now they say, probably being political, thinking about it from a very fleshly standpoint, uh, the Christ, the Messiah will be the son of David. And they think that's it. No, that's all. Jesus says, no, no. Why else? Quoting Psalm 110, why would David then say, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And the point he's making is obvious. That the Christ must be more than just the son of David, though he is. He must be more than just the son of man, though he is. He must also be the son of God. The Pharisees know exactly what he's saying, and from that point on, they don't ask him any questions. Instead, they turn now, and they try to kill him. So uh, Jesus directly uh, applied this to himself. Let's look back at Isaiah 53. We looked at this last week. Turn there with me. We're going to read these verses together. Isaiah 53. Last week, we looked at this section of verses, and the title of the section I gave it last week was um, The Suffering Servant, which this whole passage is known as the song of the suffering servant. You know, he was wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities, chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes or his wounds, we are healed. Okay, with that, that picture of the suffering servant. But if you read carefully... This is also the song of the victorious servant because Isaiah also says here that the suffering of the servant will not be the end. Okay, look at uh, Isaiah 53, specifically verses 10 through 12. Now, watch the language we looked at last week of the suffering, but then look how intermingled with that is this language of victory and triumph. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made tra- uh, makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, we went over all the suffering language last week, the crushing and the piercing and the atonement and counting as righteous through that exchange. So what is this language of victory? Well, first of all, he says he shall see his soul's anguish and he shall prolong his days. I mean, what does that mean except this suffering servant who will be wounded and die and be crushed will turn around and the inevitable conclusion is he must be raised from the dead. Because after undergoing this terrible death of crushing and piercing for our iniquities and our transgressions, God says, I will see his offering and I will prolong his days. Pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. What else? It says he shall prosper from the suffering and from the anguish and from the pain. It says the Lord will see that offering and will prosper him. Again, pointing to resurrection. And then we have this military language of victory. He will divide the spoil. The picture of a conquering king or a warrior who has gone into a city, defeated the tyrant, defeated the city, and brings out all the treasure and all the loot and all the spoil and divides it with his men. That is the picture we have of Jesus in this, in this picture of the suffering servant is also this victorious warrior who goes in, triumphs over death and hell and sin, and comes out and divides the spoil. Divides the spoil with who? Well, with me and you. Believers, those who follow him. We are part of that army. He has fought and won the war for us, and the Bible says that he has won that reward for us. And one day we'll see that in full. So even here in Isaiah's song of the suffering servant, which is very dark, very dismal, about the wounding of the suffering servant, him bearing our sins on himself, there's also these pictures of victory and triumph that can point to nothing else than the resurrection of that very suffering servant. All right, so now getting the Old Testament picture, and there are many more there. I mean, there's, there's lots of little images we can go to, and keep your eyes open for that when you're reading the Old Testament. When you see those pictures, uh, Noah in the ark, and there's the death, and there's the destruction, the judgment, but then what? Safety and a new creation, and Noah and his family emerge to begin a new life and a new creation together. It's a picture of the resurrection. Uh, Israel uh, and the plagues, and the death of the firstborn, and the passing over of the the firstborn of the house of the Israelites and going through the Red Sea and coming into the new uh, promised land. All of this is a picture of the resurrection, but these three in particular are directly quoted in the New Testament and point us to the resurrection of Jesus. So now let's look at the resurrection accounts in the New Testament. Uh, Let's just flip to Matthew's gospel. How about that? Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. We'll read this in full together. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. Therefore, you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now this is one of obviously four accounts of the resurrection. Uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. All tell one story centered on that one truth that Jesus was read. It is quite remarkable to think about how different the synoptic gospels are from John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are from John. And it's really remarkable to think about how different even the three synoptic gospels, though very similar, are from each other. And yet they coalesce around this one important event. And by the time we get to the Passion Week, beginning with Palm Sunday all the way through Easter Sunday, the Gospels, all of them, slow down. Uh, You've been going at a fast pace, and, and the authors aren't really telling you, except for John, who says this happened during this festival or this feast or whatever it is. They're not telling you how much time is going by, typically, or what year it is, or how old anybody is, or the timeline. But when you get to uh, the Passion Week, you have a very clear and deliberate slowdown. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all slow down and develop multiple chapters devoted just to this final week. And most of those chapters just to those final three days between the death of Jesus on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. And so as different as they may seem, they all tell this one story and this one truth and they come together at this one crucial point that Jesus was raised from the dead. And notice what the angel said there. The angel said, look, he's risen from the dead just as he said. Just as he said. Um, You don't have to turn here. I'm just going to read it to you. Back in Matthew chapter 17, after the transfiguration, we talked about that two weeks ago in the life of Christ. Matthew 17, 9. They were coming down from the mountain and Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision, the transfiguration until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And in Luke's account, he goes on to say that Jesus talked about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. Now, for whatever the reason, the disciples are just missing this completely, and they're missing it even on the day of resurrection. When it actually happens, they're still missing it. And the angels have to remind the women, and Jesus has to remind the two on the road to Emmaus, and he has to remind his own disciples, I told you this, all along you weren't hearing and now do you hear and now do you believe just as he said and also in luke 18 john 2 you know john 2 jesus says destroy this temple and in three days i'll rebuild it and the pharisees the religious leaders think he's talking about the actual temple but john says he was talking about himself his body he was talking about his death and his resurrection he was telling them all along what was going to happen he is risen just as he said The resurrection did not take Jesus by surprise. He knew exactly what was coming. The author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was coming on Easter Sunday morning. He knew what was coming in his glorification and his ascension. He knew what was coming. 
And because he knew that joy and he knew that promise, he endured the suffering for our sake. Just as he said, Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the center of the gospel narrative. There is no gospel story. There is no gospel presentation. There is no gospel preaching or gospel teaching without the reality of the resurrection. So there's a lot of things that churches and denominations and pastors and people out there will say, this is the gospel. A lot of it's clouded up these days with uh, social issues and this and that, and this is the gospel, and that's the gospel, and this is the gospel. And, and remember a couple weeks ago in Romans, we talked about faith comes by hearing. And I said those people who said that you'll preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, and how insane that is because to preach the gospel, you have to use words and proclaim that news. Well, just as much as you can't have the preaching of the gospel without the proclamation of it with words, you don't have a gospel without the resurrection of Jesus. And so people present any number of things. And I'll tell you, I've seen you know, preachers and been in events where with all good motives, wonderful motives, wanting to see people saved and wanting people to make a decision for Jesus, I'm not questioning anybody's motives, but it's amazing how many times people don't even present the gospel when they're trying to get people saved. And they'll appeal to fear, you know, on one hand. Who, who doesn't want to go to hell? Who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand, say the prayer, but nowhere was there a gospel. Who wants to follow Jesus? Well, I kind of do. No, no crucifixion, no resurrection. Where's the gospel? So when we preach the gospel, we must proclaim, as Paul said, first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And if anything so-called gospel is missing those components, that is not the gospel. It might be an appeal to follow Jesus. It might be a good-natured, good, righteous motivation to tell people to follow Jesus, but there is no gospel. The resurrection is the center of the gospel narrative, the gospel story, and it's the pinnacle of Jesus' work. I'm talking about here the work of Christ. This is... This is the climax. And without this, there is no work of Christ. If he had just died for our sins but was not raised from the dead, we would have cause to question whether or not he really died for our sins. But Paul says, and the New Testament says, because he died and because he rose again, we know that his sacrifice was accepted, that it did what it said it would do, and that when he said it was finished, through the resurrection, we now have the receipt for what Jesus has paid. Uh, somebody, I don't know who it is, it's not original to me, but someone once said that the resurrection, the empty tomb, is the amen to the work of the cross. That is God saying amen, it is done, and it is accepted to what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let's talk about a few undeniable proofs. Number one, the disciples' faith. This is a classic apologetic or defense of the resurrection. Um, going back probably popularly to C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity in the 1940s, but long before that, uh, how do we go from these men, except for Judas, <laughs> the 11 men who were uh, running away at the time of the arrest of Jesus, 
Peter, who denied that he knew Jesus three times, who had locked themselves in the upper room for fear of being persecuted just like Jesus was, how do we go from that to Acts 2 and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and these same men who were scared, who were fearful, who denied Jesus, who ran away from Jesus, how do we go from that to these men boldly on the day of Pentecost proclaiming the name of Jesus to thousands? And the next day in the temple proclaiming Jesus, not just to the people, but to the very people who crucified Jesus not weeks earlier. You have Peter, James, and John proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to these very people that crucified Jesus, knowing that they could suffer the same fate. How do we go from that to that? Man, unless someone is just, you have 11 people. You know what that was? That scared me. Someone got the Holy Ghost back there. Um, Unless you have 11 people having mass hallucinations all at the same time. Okay, not just one hallucination, but at least 11 mass hallucinations at the same time. Then uh, there's no way to explain this other than the reality of the resurrection. How about the empty tomb? You say, well, yeah, the empty tomb, but uh, somebody could have stole the body. Somebody could have moved the body. Here's the thing, though. We look at the empty tomb. Can somebody go shut that door? I don't know what that is, but tell them to shut up. <laughs> uh, or come teach the lesson for me. Um, the empty tomb is substantial proof. Think about it in that day. These women come back telling the disciples, the tomb is empty. We saw an angel. Jesus is risen. Multiple women, then the multiple disciples, and then all the people that see Jesus. At any point, if the tomb was still occupied, if the grave clothes were still there, and Jesus was still underneath them, wrapped up in the spices and the linens, and the stone was still there, at any point, the Jewish religious leaders at that time could have gone back and said, there's the body. Now, they accused the guards, or they, they accused the disciples of moving the body. They bribed the guards to say this. Why would they have to bribe the guards to say anything if the guards did not see what they saw, if the stone was not rolled away, and if something really, really peculiar did not happen? Why did the guards come to them, and why do they have to bribe them to lie about what they saw and say all oh, the disciples stole the body? The empty tomb is remarkable proof for the resurrection of Jesus. How about the women's testimony? Another classic defense. In this day and time, uh, women's testimonies were not admissible in court. They were not viewed as credible, and they were not used or viewed as um, believable at all. But all the Gospels rely on the testimony first of women. Now, I don't think it's an accident that the gospel writers did this. I don't think it's an accident that God chose to work this way. Because I think buried right there in that small detail is evidence of the truthfulness of what we're seeing. That right there from the beginning, God says, I'm going to do this in a way that to the world should be unbelievable. That right there from the beginning, I'm not going to start with Peter, James, and John. I'm not even going to start with any of the disciples. I want to start with these women. And God says, I know that's not what is common in the culture right now, 
But I'm going to do it that way because right there, buried in that detail, is validation of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Not to mention these 14 recorded appearances. The ones that we have in the Gospels, the ones that we see in Acts, the ones that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, the ones that Paul himself sees of the resurrected and ascended Lord. 14 recorded appearances. And by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to the women, he appeared to James. It says he appeared to 500 brothers at once. Jesus did, the resurrected Jesus. And Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 that many of them are still alive to this day. You know what that means? You can go ask them for yourself if they saw the risen Lord Jesus. And some of those 500 are still alive by the time Paul writes that as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus. This shows us that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a theological theory, but a historical fact. It's easy for us as Christians to, to use the church language, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and to talk about these things as, as if they're just sort of you know, religious abstracts out there that we know what we mean and, and we know what we're saying, but we never really stop sometimes to think about the reality of this event. This is not just a theological formula. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again as the old liturgies taught us to say. It's not just part of a formula or just something that we recite and say. This is historical fact. These were historical events. One of the things you can appreciate about the Christian faith is that it's based in time and space and history. You know, I, was t I was talking to our, our college small group about the Mormons. I've talked to you all about this before too, but the Mormons have you know, an, an entire book, the Book of Mormon, so-called scripture, that has no historical veracity, no historical support, that there were Israelites who lived in North America before the time of Christ, and that's who the Native Americans are. They're actually Israelites, and Jesus came to visit them. And There's absolutely no evidence for any of that at all. But a Mormon will look at you, the missionaries, you have them in your house, you ask them that question, they'll say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the Book of Mormon says so, and we just take it by faith. Now, we take the scriptures by faith, but God is not asking us to be stupid. He says you can place your faith and your trust in this, yes, but it's historical, it's verifiable, it was there, and it happened. These are not just made up things that God is asking us just to take at face value, close our eyes and just hope it's true. No, he's saying you can take this to the bank because it really happened. So we're not just talking about theological jargon here. Christ was raised from the dead. We're talking about an actual person who was killed, who was buried, and who really physically got up from the dead on the third day, walked out of the tomb, and then ascended to heaven 40 days later. But, obviously, that is not to say there is not theological truth here. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for many other theological truths in the scripture. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Let's see what Paul says. Romans chapter 1. Remember back to our introduction in Romans. 
back in May. I know y'all remember everything I say. Some of it anyway. Look at what Paul says about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. This is the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Okay, so what? On one hand, he's the son of man, he's the son of David. We understand that. Paul says he's also the son of God. And what's the proof for that? Well, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, proclaims that. How does he proclaim it? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation for this truth, the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ. That he's not just the son of David, a son of Adam, a man, though he is. He is the God-man. And the proof of that godness is testified there by the Holy Spirit who raised him up from the dead. Uh, go back to Acts 17, just one book there. We'll look at this together. Acts 17, verse 31. Paul says here, um, He has fixed a day, that's God, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. He's going to judge the world by his son, Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. The gospel itself hinges on the truth of the resurrection. The very fact that God has sent his son, has raised him from the dead, has received him into heaven, and will send him again to judge the living and the dead. Paul says here, how do we have assurance of that? Because God raised him from the dead. Look at the uh, book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Familiar passage for many. Wonderful passage about our hope. But, but look at what Peter says here. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Look at what he says in verse 4 about this living hope. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God has given you the new birth. He's transferred you to the kingdom of his son. He has given you an inheritance that is there in heaven right now. And Peter says this is a living hope that will never fade away. And what does he say it's all based on at the end of verse 3? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The very hope of heaven is tied to the truth of the resurrection. Peter says all of this is possible because of the power of the resurrection. And if there were no resurrection, you can just work backwards in Peter's logic. There is no living hope. There is no inheritance. And there's no heaven. At least not that we know of. 
But because God sent his son and raised him from the dead, we have assurance of our hope in heaven. The resurrection of Christ also shows us that there is eternal meaning in the universe. Number one, life is not a meaningless nothingness. I like that combination of words, meaningless nothingness. The, any worldview that denies, let's just say the basics of supernatural, okay? Um, not that it's good enough to just be a Muslim or it's good enough just to be a believer, uh, a Jewish believer or something. It's not, that, I'm not saying it's good enough to be those things. But let's just take the anti-supernatural, naturalist, scientism, logic, reason, all those things crowd. You know, the, all there is is what we can see. All there is is what we can experience with our senses, and there's nothing beyond that. And the inevitable conclusion behind all of that obviously is, if there's no God, and there's no life after death, and there is no judgment, then really, think about it, there's no such thing as good or evil. There's no such thing as right or wrong, or true or false. And so a secular humanist or someone that's denied the supernatural has every right to say, there's no such thing as right or wrong. Who are you to tell me what to do or anyone what to do for that matter? Because we all just made this up anyway. Without the truth of the resurrection, life does mean nothing. Nothing. There is no point. There is no purpose. There's no overarching storyline to any of it if Jesus is not raised from the dead. And so life is not a meaningless nothingness. The resurrection shows us that. It shows us that life is not mere, mere physical existence ending in death. <coughs> life is physical existence. God made it that way. Physical existence is not bad. It's not evil. God created it and said that's good. One day he will raise us up in a physical existence, glorified but physical. So it's not bad, but it's not just that. That just ends in death. And then nothing. Jesus offers eternal life with God. That is the offer, isn't it? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I came to give my sheep life and to give them life more abundant. This is the promise of the gospel that there is life beyond right here and right now. There is something beyond right here and right now. And the resurrection shows us that Jesus came to reverse all that is wrong. The resurrection is a reversal of all that is wrong. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the suffering, all the death, all the sin, all the wickedness, all the wrong is being undone in the resurrection. But it also points to something future for us, and that is our future resurrection. I think we have time to look at these scriptures. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I referenced it a lot earlier, but I want to read together. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning in verse 20. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
That means he's the first of many. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I love all the subjection and subjection, don't you? There's a central truth here, though. Paul says, we also will be raised in Christ. If Christ has been raised, we also will be raised. You see what Paul says there? But in fact, Christ has been raised. First fruits. We'll talk about first fruits a little bit on Sunday and this uh, idea of the harvest that kind of came in these stages in the ancient Near East, uh, specifically as we look at the Old Testament, that with the harvest came the initial fruit, the first fruits that were gathered. But that wasn't the end. There was more to come. There was the actual harvest, and then there were the gleanings. Remember Ruth picking up the gleanings from Boaz and his men working in the field. That was after the harvest, what was left, what fell to the ground that was commanded to leave for the poor and the needy. So you have these kind of stages. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus was the pinnacle. It is the center, but it was just the beginning. And since Jesus is the first fruits, well, what will, what will the primary harvest then be, Paul? He said it'll be us, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's what it says there, those who belong to Christ, verse 23, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. A remarkable picture of the resurrection is given to us in Job 19. You don't have to turn there. I can just, we can just quote it together. Job says, we will see him in our flesh. It's, uh, Job is responding to the Lord, and he's, uh, you know, he's got these friends that are there telling him, oh, Job, what did you do wrong? You, you, you must have done something wrong to deserve all this. Just repent of that so God will forgive you and move on. Then you got his wife trying to get him to curse God so that he'll just die and stop suffering. But Job, to that point, is holding out. No, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, he knows he's a sinner, but he knows he hasn't done anything to merit all this punishment, this suffering from God. He knows that's not what's going on here. At least at that point, he does. And he talks about his suffering. He says, you know, even if my heart and flesh, even if my flesh fails, Job says, even if I die and go to the grave... Job says, I know one day I will see my Redeemer with my eyes in my flesh. I know that my Redeemer lives. And Job says, I will see him in my flesh. That's a remarkable promise from what is probably the earliest written book in the Old Testament. That right there from the beginning, we have this promise of resurrection. That we will see our Redeemer with our own eyes, in our flesh. Not just a spiritual, you know, bodiless existence out there. We talked about this in our, our heaven series. But in our flesh, Job says, I will see God. We have hope in him. Uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Very familiar passage about the coming of Christ and the resurrection. 
of the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, you see that? Since, because we believe that that happened, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now you know the rest of it, don't you? Trump will sound, the voice of the archangel will cry the command, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And if there are any people alive then, believers that remain at that time, they will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will forever be with the Lord. This is the promise of that day of resurrection. When Christ returns, trumpet sounds, the angel sounds the command, and the dead in Christ are raised. And Paul says this should give us hope, this should give us comfort, because people who die in the Lord, it is as if, Paul says, they have just fallen asleep. They are just sleeping. So we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, we experience the pain, we know the loss, but Paul says because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that he will bring them with him when he returns. Lastly, turn to Revelation chapter 21. I've read this a lot over the last year through our series on heaven and and our talk of the the person of Christ, but I want to end here tonight too. We have a future with him. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. And all of that, all of that, It's predicated on the first chapter in Revelation. When John first sees the resurrected Lord, the glorified Lord, and the Lord says to him, I am he who died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is the thesis statement of the book of Revelation. I am the one who died, but I'm alive forevermore. And it's because of that truth, just what Paul just said in 1 Thessalonians, because we believe he died and rose again, we have hope. So now we say because of the book of Re- beginning of Revelation, he's the one who died and lives forevermore, we have Revelation 21. The end of death, the end of pain, the end of sorrow, the end of suffering. Now, here's the horrible truth behind it for all of us. We're not to that day yet. Christ has not returned yet. The judgment has not come yet. Death has not been finally defeated yet, though it has been dealt the death blow through the resurrection of Jesus. That day is yet coming. That day of promise and joy and fulfillment is yet coming. 
But here's what we do have as believers. Because we know that the victory has been won. Because we know that Christ has died and has been raised from the dead. Because we know that he is the one who died and behold, he lives forevermore. We can have hope and assurance and certainty even in the midst of trials and suffering and pain. And here's the kicker. We can have hope even in the face of death because we know that Jesus has already defeated death. I love this quote from Spurgeon that I'll I'll close us with tonight. Spurgeon was a pastor, preacher, pastor, and obviously as a pastor, he visited people, the sick, and his congregation, those who were dying. And he said this, the various happy persons I have ever met with have been departing believers. The only people for whom I felt any envy have been dying members of this very church whose hands I have grasped in their passing away, almost without exception. I've seen them in the holy delight and triumph. And in the exceptions to this exceeding joy, I've seen deep peace exhibited in a calm and deliberate readiness to enter into the presence of their God. What, what else can explain that peace and that readiness to enter into the presence of God. I mean, what, what other, what other, uh, you point, point me to a truth or a philosophy or a worldview that offers that kind of hope and certainty. And we could point to other religions. We could point to many other religions and say, well, there's hope. But I would say, is it? You could point to Islam and say, well, there's the, pro- they have a promise of heaven. There's paradise and Allah is there and he gives them comfort and peace and safety and security. Ask a Muslim if they have any certainty of their salvation. The answer is no. I don't. I hope that my righteousness outweighs my sin and Allah grants me entrance into paradise. Talk to a Jew who actually believes in heaven or eternal life, which that's pretty rare. Talk to a Jew and say, are you, say, are you going to heaven to be with God? I hope so. I try my best to keep the law. Only God will know if my good outweighs my bad. We'll see what happens when we get there. You talk to a lot of Christians. So-called Christians think this way too. I don't know if I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. And, and maybe one day when I get to heaven, we'll see if the good outweighs the bad. And if God, let, you know, St. Peter lets me in the pearly gates. We hear Christians talking this way. Roman Catholics talk this way. I've done my best. I went to church. I was true to the church. I did the sacraments. I took all the grace in that I could get. I hope when I stand before Jesus, after all the years in purgatory, that is, I hope when I get to heaven, it'll, it'll be sufficient. Christianity, evangelical Protestant Christianity, Bible Christianity is the only answer that gives certainty and hope and assurance of salvation. And here's the kicker, because people will hear that and say, that sounds arrogant. How do you know that you've got the only way? How do you know that your way is right? The answer to that is very simple. It's not my way, and I didn't say it. God said it. God assures me of it. And here's the real kicker. 
It's not even my work that does it. It's the work of Jesus. His death. His resurrection. That is my hope of salvation. And so, yes, I have 100% certainty that I belong to God. Not because of me or my works or my feelings, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And it is only that kind of peace and assurance and certainty that grants believers that kind of peace in the face of death itself. That says, I am ready to go be with Jesus because what he has done for me. Next week, uh, we'll look at the ascension of Christ. And as we kind of wind down this section on the work of Christ, I encourage you to get your Get your questions in as we go week to week. If you think of one as we're studying in here, you can text me while I'm teaching. My phone's on silent. It won't bother me. Uh, so do that. Write it down while we're sitting here. If you think of one uh, week to week and turn it in so I can have those for the Q&A in November. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who gave himself for us on the cross, who was buried and who rose again on the third day, that we might have hope and life in you and with you forever. Give us assurance and certainty in that promise tonight through what Jesus has done for us. Turn our hearts and minds away from ourselves, away from our works, away from this world, and turn them to Christ, and help us to look to him as the one who gives us eternal life and hope and peace forever. Uh, fix our gaze and our focus on him as we go. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and your power to proclaim that gospel in the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.